Hey, I'm Mike Cruz, the founder and CEO of Visible. As you scale your company, having the right guides at your side can make all of the difference. Each episode, we'll talk to fellow founders, investors, and experts. We'll dive into their zone of genius, as well as hear about their past mistakes to give you a better chance of success. This podcast is for founders by founders. This is the Founders Forward. Welcome to season two of the Founders Forward. Uh, for those of you that don't know, season two is going to be all about understanding the venture investor psyche. You know, we believe that the best chance of success for companies fundraising is to understand the mindset of the investors. Uh, so this season, we're going to talk to investors across the stage spectrum, ranging from uh, investors investing in more lifestyle companies to private equity and, and everything in between. Um, so today is episode one. I'm joined by Ken So, who's an associate at Shasta Ventures. Uh, before Shasta, Ken received his MBA from Kellogg. Uh, also had stints at Hustle Fund, Boston Consulting Group, and a couple other gigs. Uh, Ken, welcome to the show. Did I miss anything there? No, I think you got most of it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, awesome. All right, so first thing, eat fresh Hong Kong famous street food. That is your mom's restaurant in the Philippines. You were born there. Um, I checked out the Facebook page. It looks like it looks pretty incredible. <laughs> I'm surprised <laughs> you found out about that. Um, but yes. So I grew up in, in uh, I would say, a very food-oriented family. And kind of one of the ways my mom tried to make a living is because she cooks for us a lot. And actually, yeah. a lot of friends ask her to cook for them. She just decided to start up a restaurant. So I grew up inside a restaurant, pretty much. Did you have every job imaginable there, or were you strictly consumer? I would say 90 95%, actually, 98% consumer. Okay. Um, the times when I would help out would be selling stuff on the streets, actually outside the store. Oh, awesome. Okay. So you're born in the Philippines. Um, you know, I would love just to hear a little bit about your story, right? Uh, like how, maybe how is certainly interesting. I think like how people get into venture is always interesting, but like why too? Like, why did you get into, into venture? Yeah. Let's see. Broad strokes will be that I think when it comes to my career out of undergrad, I've always wanted a job where I can look at what's the latest, look at different stuff, businesses, and projects. And that's why I've kind of navigated my way into consulting and investment banking and tried out those stuff. But what I've always found missing was that personal relationship. I think investment banking and consulting it tends to be more transactional, really. Um, you go into projects six weeks and then you're done and then you probably don't don't build friendships. And that's really what yeah. I missed. And yeah. I did realize that's the part I was missing until I bumped into venture. So going back to, to me growing up in the Philippines, I really don't know what venture was until I came to the US and do my MBA and luckily found my way into venture and then and said, wow, this is, I think, a job for me because it has everything I wanted in like looking at different businesses and meeting different people. But there's really more of a personal relationship building there. Yeah. Do you remember what the catalyst was? So, you, you know, you're getting an MBA catalog, like, was there something you read, a class you took, or like, what was your intro into, into venture? Yeah, it was, um, I would say the real catalyst was a program in Kellogg, wherein we, we would be sent to San Francisco to do one quarter there. Okay. And then um, part of the program was you had to intern with either a startup in the VC, and I decided to intern with the VC. Luckily, was able to convince one of the partners at Shasta to, to take me as an intern and then just fell in love with it. Um, and very, very lucky to be offered a, to join them post-graduation as well. Yeah. Okay. 
that's that's awesome. I think that's a, that's a good segue. Just to like, you know, I know Shasta is is a brand name, uh, big fun, but maybe for those that don't know, um, and then I apologize because I know you probably say this like every day on an intro call with the founder, but like, can you just give us like general name, rate, CEO number type stuff, Shasta, like stage, sector, check size, like some of that, some of that stuff that founders care about. Yeah, happy to. So um, Shasta Ventures, been in the Valley 16, 17 years. And I would say maybe starting off with the history, we used to be a generalist early stage fund, meaning we invested in consumer hardware, business software, and so on. But in 2019, there was the refocusing on just B2B software. So right now, Shasta and the tagline is an early stage investor in B2B software or enterprise software. Um, early stage differs from fund to fund, but for us, it's series A, but we invest in where from C to series B. Check sizes has been interesting. I think we'll be yeah. talking about this later as, as how the VC um, world has changed is that um, we've been very flexible now. I would say our average check size is five to 10. But I think right now is that we're being more flexible as long as we have conviction in the founders and the company. Flexible as in smaller or flexible as in larger or both? Both. Both. Okay. Uh, tends to be smaller, I would say, just from our experience. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Um, yeah, we're certainly going to cover that. I think, you know, one of the things that I, I find fascinating is um, you wrote a book. So you wrote this book uh, about venture at the junior level. Uh, why did you write this book? Like, there's a ton of things, like, is, was this something that you wanted to, based on your own experience, or like, why, why write a book about breaking into venture, you know, at the, at the junior level? Yeah, um, two reasons. One is self-serving, second is pay it forward. First yeah. is self-serving is because I get asked the same questions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's just an easy resource. It's like FAQs. This is what I did and this is how you do it and so on. But also pay it forward. A lot of people help me to get into where I am. So I think this is a way for me to do the same for those who are really interested in becoming a junior BC. So so junior BC is pretty pretty interesting, right? If you if you go on tech Twitter, quote unquote tech Twitter, and you read kind of two different takes. You read takes of like talking to an associate is like not the best use of the time for a founder. Like you should ignore those. Uh, and you should only fundraise when you're fundraising, right? Mm -hmm. I run a tight cycle, et cetera. Uh, then there's the other kind of take, which is you should always be fundraising. Associates can be like great champions for you. You should, you should really leverage people at the fund that are maybe not partners. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I know, I know your answer is going to be biased, but like how can, founders leverage maybe non-partners at a fund, you know, associates, principals, maybe operating partners when they're fundraising, like, how should I think about spending my time with, you know, Ken? Uh, mm -hmm. And maybe Ken reaches out to me outbound, should I take that call? Why should I take that call? And, and what are you hoping to, you know, build out of that initial meeting? Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think there's always a debate, but I think maybe bias, but I genuinely think this, even if, say, I'm a partner, it's good to always build the relationship with the associate if you don't have a good into the partner. Like, yeah. I think it just makes sense that you always try to build a relationship with the partner directly. Um, but the thing is that with partners, especially senior ones, they probably sit on five to 10 boards. Um, and then whatever time they have left, they give to family and maybe 10% goes to finding new investments. And when it comes to finding new investments, they have probably based on the experience of very specific areas they want to focus on. So they just don't have the time really to look at new companies, um, if you think about it. And associates, 
their role is to build relationships with founders. And they're kind of different from, from the fund, but their success metric is actually championing a deal throughout the investment process. And that's why you should really build a relationship with associates because that's their role, really, to find new companies to build a relationship with. And if they're excited, they'll champion you throughout the whole process. What, what percentage of deals do you think uh, JASA or similar funds, like what percent of those deals are being sourced through, through an associate versus like an introduction right to, to a partner? Like, do you have any interesting data on on what role or, or, cause you mentioned like one of the success metrics is like sourcing companies, like any idea of like what percentage that might be? I don't think so. I think the, I think there's an interesting survey by Harvard researchers who did like survey almost a thousand VCs. I, I may be misquoting the number, but I think 30% are around outbound, okay. 30, 35%, but it really differs from fund to fund. Yeah, yeah. And how are you spending your day like sourcing companies? Are you, um, you know, don't get feel don't feel like you have to give away any secret sauce or anything. But like, is it mostly outbound? Is it is it referrals from other people that you know in your network, or or how are you building relationships with with founders? Yeah, I think it's changed from the time I started to now, where I'm a few years in. I think at the start it was just a hundred percent outbound, yeah. and now that I've built relationships and and to some extent a little brand name, is that I'm getting more referrals in. Um, I would still say fifty. So from 100% right now, I would say around 50-50, outbound, 50% inbound slash referrals. Um, yeah. Your balance is good. Like the rule of thumb, even like the best account executives at like a SaaS company in the world, like 50% sure are being done by like an inbound BDR type person, but like the best AEs are always doing their own prospecting still, no matter what. Um, oh, so like that's that, that that. like a rule of thumb. Yeah, it's like I think the best AEs are always doing their own prospecting too. So you kind of fit that model at least. I think venture and, and B2B enterprise sales like fits a very similar kind of funding mo- or like funnel um, in a way. So I yeah. always like to, to run some of those some of those comparisons. Um, yeah. But okay. Um, so we talked about valuation and, and check sizes and things like that, right? Like, right. Uh, I think you recently wrote on, on your blog, and we'll make sure to link to this in the, in the post, a couple of examples like Clubhouse, uh, Retool, uh, both raised at over like a billion dollar valuation. You know, Clubhouse, I think, doesn't have any revenue, from my, at least from what I know. And Retool, mm-hmm. I think it was like 100x, right? I think they're doing like $10 million, um, which is great. I mean, I think it's kind of well known, like, oh, that might be crazy, maybe not. Um, so like, you know, why is this happening? Like wh- what's going on in the venture space right now where you're seeing larger check sizes and, and different, uh, valuations. Like, I know you've written about this, but I'd be just curious to hear so like founders understand, like you read these headlines, but why is this actually happening from a, I guess, a fundamental perspective? Yeah, I would say two reasons. I think one is supply and demand of capital. Um, second is just the how exit sizes have changed. Like some companies are now just going out value being valued at hundred billion at IPO. So I think those are the two main reasons. So kind of digging down into the two, the first one first, supply and demand, right? Um, I think in the article, I mentioned that the number of new companies being created each year has only increased 40%. So let's say you the number of companies in 2010, let's say a thousand were created in that year. Yeah. In 2020, it's a thousand four hundred, like a 40% increase. But yeah. the amount of venture money that went in that growth from 2010 to 2020 grew 400%. Yeah. 
for the 10x difference, right? And you think about just basic supply and demand, demand being the demand for startups and the supply being the amount of capital going to those startups, just like the valuations will just increase, the price increases too. Um, so that's one. And there's a couple more nuances into that we can dig into later. Like there's now more bigger mega funds and as the mega fund, you have to deploy larger checks and so on. That kind of influences the dynamic as well. But going to the second one of just like larger exit sizes, kind of stepping back, I think the dynamic in every VC investor and really any investor's head is that what's the potential exit? Mm -hmm. right? I invested hundred million. What will it IPO and get acquired that? And the growth at which uh, the valuation at which companies IPO at has grown, I think 7x over the past 10 years. And so that's one reason why investors are willing to make a larger bet because they expect their, their investments to exit at the larger valuation. What? Um, let's go back to the, to the I guess, the, the former around supply and demand. So 10 years, capital's increased 400%. Uh, which is greatly outpacing number of companies being started. Why is there like an influx of, this is a way outside my pay grade. Like why is there influx of capital in the venture, right? Is it ma super macroeconomic reasons? Like people looking for yield and they're not getting it somewhere. Um, Cause like venture as an asset class is pretty interesting data as well. Like I believe like 25%, you know, to be in the, a lot of funds don't even return capital back. So like, why are people willing to pour more capital in if the asset class itself is kind of like, eh. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think one thread going there is that because of the really good venture returns, a lot of the big hedge funds, public market players just went into venture. Classic is Tiger Global, Co2, and so on. So that's one reason. Um, but I think second reason is just how you mentioned this macro is like a lot of the uh, economic development and strength, I guess politically as well, comes from technology companies. Mm -hmm. And now they have much more outsized returns and larger roles and brand names and so on. Lots of different factors. And these are all venture back companies. And that's yeah. one reason why a lot of these pension funds, institutional LPs say, hey, let's go into venture. Aside from returns, there's also all of these other soft aspects as well. Yeah. In terms of the mega fund, would you consider Shasta a mega fund? No. So mega fund in my head is if they raise the fund, um, so not the whole firm, but the fund of a billion or more. Okay. And, and so like, what's the risk of a founder, right? Because they need to deploy a lot of capital, right? To turn, return that type of fund, uh, they need a lot of returns, right? Bigger check sizes. Like, what's my risk as a founder if I'm looking at one of like the mega like funds leads my, you know, one of my early rounds, right? Because they're they're investing across pretty much every single stage. Like, what risk do I have as a founder uh, when I look at something like a like a mega fund? Yeah, I think there's a couple of aspects there. One is signaling risk, which is very much real, and that you probably read from all around yeah. the internet is that if Sequoia led you around, why are they not doubling down? Like there must be something, right? Because mm -hmm. any rational financial investor would double down in a good investment. And there's and for a lot of VCs, that's that's a red flag. Um, that's one one real risk. And second, which is not so much related, which is kind of indirectly related to mega funds, but more directly related to valuation. So mega funds tend to pay up more, higher valuations, and that is a risk. 
because you have to be able to grow into your valuation. And if you don't achieve that, that's also a risk. And the risk there is primarily around down rounds and which has a number of other implications. Yeah. And what about investors, right? Like what are the risks for investors when you're investing at 100x valuation, you know, where you're paying uh, quite a premium maybe on the company? Um, like how, how do you think about that risk and, and maybe what are ways to maybe mitigate risk of such a, a high valuation in, in a company? I think the main risk is that you're just going to lose the money or not have a lot of profits over it. Essentially, financial investors aim sure. to generate profit. And once you're investing at a billion, uh, think about what are the potential upsides. Like what's the likelihood of it, a company growing to 10 billion? I mean, it might be larger, but by how much larger would that probability be? So you're, the risk really is having a bad fund. And the ways to mitigate that, I think that I'll, I guess, capture some anecdotes that I heard from a number of other VCs. Number one is that it's a strategic investment. It's good to have, quote, it's a bad way. I think it's a tricky way of investing is that you just want to have the logo of that company in mm-hmm. your fund and all the benefits and signaling effects that that brings. Um, number two is that they want to build a relationship with the founders or the team. They just think it's a rockstar team. This may not be the company that might succeed. It might succeed, but if not, we know that this founder is great and we we have a better chance of backing their next company. Um, second way, and this is much less common of mitigating, especially in the Valley, um, financial engineering. They structure mm-hmm. liquidation preferences in their favor, stack them um, 2X, 3X, whatever. And that's how they mitigate it. Um, yeah. So I would say those are the ways they mitigate, but I would say I'm not so convinced <laughs> on the balance. Yeah, yeah it's pretty interesting. I, I was, can't remember who, who, where I read this, but um, someone looked at all of their data and basically like if you looked at the, the portfolio, like the financial engineering of like preferences and all that, none of that mattered or made the fund successful. Like the winners were winners and, and that's what made the fund successful. It wasn't like any of the financial engineering of, of preferences and, and participation or, or whatever uh, a VC might add in there, which I think is pretty pretty interesting, but makes sense, right? It kind of follows the, yeah. the power law curve. So exactly. Uh, yeah, which is which is pretty interesting. I want to switch gears to like what um, you know, when, when you're talking to companies, you know, how frequently are you trying to get on someone's radar before maybe they're a good fit? For, for Shasta, right? So you mentioned Series A, but sometimes see like, are you are you talking to companies when they're when they're just getting started and, and maybe call it even like a, a quote unquote pre-seed company or or how how early are you looking to get on a radar of a company and how early should a company get on your radar? Like when should I start thinking about like reaching out to, to Ken and, and keeping you up to date of what's going on in my company? I think it really differs from fund to fund. So I'll give you my answer and yeah. I can share anecdotes about how other funds are doing it as well. I think at the seed or right after seed fundraise is a great way for me to start engaging with the company. Um, and primarily the, the reason why I avoid engaging at their seed round is that um, there is a preference of Shasta for post-revenue. Like it could be mm-hmm. seed, series A, whatever, but post-revenue. And the, the reason why I try to avoid engaging at the seed stage is that I don't want it to be a distraction for the founders. Like I'm just there to build their relationship. Yeah. And I think I'm, I think as a firm and myself as well, I just want to be super respectful to the founder's time was always time for us to kind of 
And that's why I don't too much engage at the seed level. But definitely at the post-seed level, when they've gotten the breather from the fundraising round, that's when I think is the best way to start building a relationship. It's long enough from the Series A when I get the chance to know them um, at a much longer time, rather yeah. than say just start engaging at the Series A, where in the pace of how fast rounds are going now, one week or two weeks, I don't know if I can get the conviction that, hey, this is a great person to work with. And likewise, like I'm a great investor to work with in two weeks. Yeah, the, the shotgun stuff of that is pretty wild. Um, in terms of what's happening, we, because like the, the whole fit with your investor is so crucial to your, your success as a company. We, we did some data where like the MPS score, we asked founders, um, if you, you know, give an MPS score to the investor who made your most recent round, what would it be? And I think like across the the, the survey it was like a twenty three, uh, which is pretty which is pretty dismal. Like that's like an airline, um, yeah. and so the the whole thing was like it's easier to to change your airline than it is to change your VC. So like uh, it's uh, I think it's incredibly important to to build relationships with with people because it's a you know multi 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 year um, uh, relationship that you're going to build. Uh, so like, how, how how should founders think about keeping you up to date of what's going on in there? This is a little self-serving for for visible, but like, do you like to be on investor updates and and you know hearing what's going on with companies and and what are you looking for maybe metrics wise uh, from those companies as they're progressing towards their you know their Series A? Yeah, um, actually, the the investor newsletter investor updates I think is one of the best tactics to use. Um, I think it's just a very scalable way for both founders and VCs to get updated. Because I think the usual cadence pre all of these newsletter things, which actually I think is not done enough, is that they'll touch up every quarter, try to schedule something 30 minutes. But actually all of the information that usually each the VCs want to get can be contained in an email. Um, So I think that's a really great way. Um, So that's one. And I think I missed your other question. Um, no, I think like I was just curious of, of how, you know, frequently or, or mediums, you said email, um, like what are things that, you know, you guys care about? Is it recurring revenue? You, you mentioned B2B, you know, SaaS yeah. companies, is it like recurring revenue or there's certain milestones or growth rates you guys like to see certain markets? Like what gets you, what gets you excited as, as you know, uh, your, your role at, at Chasa when you're, when you're getting those updates from companies? Yeah. I think the the magic number has always been around 1 million ARR. It's a recurring revenue, subscription revenue. Um, Focused on, um, I think in my case, I look at two broad areas, actually one broad area, one specific area. And the specific area is around machine learning tooling. So that's where I spend a lot of time on because I was past data scientist. And then the broad area tends to be around work applications. So think about mm-hmm. sales tech, HR tech, legal tech, and so on. That's where I spend a lot of time on. So um, marketing myself is just if there's any founders out there building uh, startups in those space and have growth rates of high growth rates. I think the usual benchmark is two, three X. Um, that is above 1 million ARR. I think that's really the sweet spot for, for Shasta and myself. Yeah, yeah. awesome. Um, some questions we're going to ask all guests this season so we can kind of build a, a library of, of responses and, and have some good resources. Um, founders reaching out to you cold, like what catches your eye? What are you most likely to engage with uh, if uh, a founder's emailing you cold? Yeah, I think 
hard data points. I think being on the Series A investor, there should be enough data about revenue or user traction. I think that's one, how much they've grown in the current revenue. Um, second is just a sprinkling of the customers, the logos they've won, because I think that signals a lot. For example, a, a SaaS company sells to Salesforce. That's probably mm -hmm. went through a battery of tests and validation. So those, that's a really good signal. And three, and this is less common, but probably why they're winning those logos versus other competitors, mm. right? Because eventually that, that's, yeah. that's, that's the thing that investors will drill down into. Because um, right now it's so competitive in the SaaS space, there's probably 20, 30 companies doing the same thing. But if you can highlight why you're winning, you're even better, and there's proof point of winning a customer, I think that is I, that yeah. would just catch my eye. Yeah. And, and related to that, what's the number one thing that founders can do uh, to help create momentum in their fundraising process? I think one, <laughs> this is one effective way, um, is just say, <laughs> this is a tongue in cheek answer. It's just say, oh, Sequoia is looking at us. <laughs> a lot of other VCs, syndicate funds, solo capitalists will start looking at it as well. I think that's yeah. one tongue-in-cheek answer. But I think the the one more applicable way is something we talked about earlier. It's just keeping the investors updated. Mm -hmm. um, and that would include not only metrics, but also saying like, hey, we're gearing up. And I think you pair that with really good data points. And that's how you create really good momentum, organic momentum, instead of maybe something less organic, name dropping tier one VCs looking yeah. into you. Yeah. Um, if someone thinks they're a good fit for Shasta outside of, you know, contacting you, like any good tips for getting in touch, like what's the best, is it getting an intro or what's what's the best, I guess, uh, or, or yeah, success for, for getting a meeting at least with Shasta. And then um, we'd love just to kind of hear your guys' process as well. Like, is there a partner meeting and it's like, uh, you need to have a majority uh, for like, you know, once we, I'm kind of we fast forward now through diligence and we're, we're talking about a term sheet, like how, how are those decisions made as well? Yeah. So I think on the first way, um, the easiest way is getting a warm intro, especially from founders and investors that we worked with before. I think that's the fastest way. But bar that, I think even though a lot that has been said about VC being quite the close network, I think most VCs still entertain cold emails a lot. Yeah. I think cold email still works. So email me, I think most VCs emails are out there anyway. Um, so it's very easy to find. So the process differs by the check size. So let's just bucket into small check and large checks. Okay. Um, small checks are relatively straightforward process. Um, depends on who your first contact is. Assuming I'm the first contact, um, I really like it. I'll loop in some partners. I think the approval process is really support from two partners mm -hmm. and then that's it. So there's no need for the whole partnership to meet and, and decide. So that's a small check process. A larger check process would then be um, contact me. I'll loop in the right colleagues and um, whether that's venture partners or actually investment partners to do due diligence with. And then process takes around two, three weeks or depending on, on how the round goes. Right now, that's even long considering the pace, pace of VC yeah. right now. Um, and then it culminates in a partner's meeting. Um, and then there's a decision within that week whether a term sheet or no. The pace, let's, let's go back to the pace right now because that keeps coming up. Pace and check size, like 
you got new people like Tiger Global, maybe not new, but you know they're they're clearly making a lot of headlines. What is going on that's causing not only I guess is it just supply and demand? Is it that imbalance that you mentioned of there's like a lot of capital and so farmers want to move fast and, and that's what's creating this environment of not only higher or bigger check sizes, but also faster rounds getting done? I think there's two two things to tease out there. I think one is really, like you said, the supply, which means it's much more competitive. And for founders, founders who actually just want to keep on building, speed is very important to them. I think the second aspect is since we talk keep on talking about Tiger Global is that yeah. they're even though they have a very small official full-time investment team, they actually kind of outsource all of the associate work to Bain or one of the consulting companies. Oh. So they have like hundreds of consultants on staff that's actually doing the work for them. So they can actually move with speed. Um, so that's the other dynamic. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, awesome. Um, you know, what's next for you, Tim? Are you looking to be a, a lifelong venture investor or are there other things at some point, you know, you want to go do? I know some people do shorter, maybe not shorter since, but, you know, since at venture funds, like what are you looking, you know, to do long-term and what gets you excited and, and have energy every day? Yeah, um, I think the current direction is uh, being a lifelong investor. I think I really enjoy this job. Um, very lucky to have landed into it. I just really enjoy, I think like most people who are in the job, enjoy meeting new people, smart people trying to do something, usually something for for the betterment of, of, of the world, if I want to sound very, very nice. Um, yeah. But I think for most VCs, there's always the option and an itch to build something. You see so many great companies being built, you just kind of want to be part of it. So I always have that option in the back of my head. Yeah. Whenever there's something I see that, hey, I just really want to build, but nothing yet so far. So right now, life of an investor. Love it. Well, Ken, can't thank you enough for for joining and, and sharing your story with us and walking us through, you know, your day-to-day role and, and how founders can be better. Uh, at, at hopefully running a, a fundraising process. Uh, again, really appreciate the time. Uh, everyone else will catch you on episode two of season two coming out soon. Uh, and we'll see everyone shortly. Thanks.